Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. silently as I pray out loud this morning. Father, you have made us for your glory. And Lord, when we are not an instrument for your glory, we are nothing. No sin is greater in your eyes than our sin of unbelief. For if union with Christ is the greatest good, unbelief is the greatest sin. As being rebellious against your commands is, we see our sin for what it is. Yet no sin is like disunion from Christ by our unbelief. Lord, keep us from committing this greatest of sins in departing from him. Keep us close, Lord, for we can never in this life perfectly obey and cling to Christ. Indeed, when you take away our outward blessings, it is for sin and not acknowledging that all we have is from you and not serving you with what we do have in making ourselves secure and hard of heart. Good things become to us secret idols and hurt the most. The greatest damage to our faith is having them. The greatest good comes when you remove them from us. In love then, Father, we pray, take away our blessings, our good things, if by that we would glorify you more. Lord, we pray that you would remove the fuel of our sin. And may we prize the gain of a little holiness as bearing more weight than all of our loss. The more we love you with a truly gracious love, Father, the more we desire to love you. And the more miserable we are at our lack of love for you, the more we hunger and thirst after you, the more we faint and fail in finding you. The more our hearts are broken for sin, the more we pray it may be far more broken. Keep us this morning, Father, from all things that turn to unbelief or lack of felt union with Christ. Amen. It's good to be together this morning, is it not? Amen, amen. Well, go ahead and turn with me to Mark 4, 1 through 20 this morning as we continue to journey through Mark. You know, it's really interesting. Some of you may have noticed that I wasn't in Sunday school this morning. Let me say this. I appreciate you guys letting me preach because it's a new thing for me, really. I'm an amateur, and so you're pretty much just getting experimented on. So uh, bear with me. I appreciate the opportunity. With this text that we're going to be reading this morning, that we're going to be hearing from the Holy Spirit on. As I went to put the finishing touches on it this morning, I couldn't do it. I had to keep making changes. I wasn't settled with it, and I began to pray and ask God, what is going on? Why is this sermon from this text so hard to finalize? And I began to realize that it's because this text is a hard text. This text is about hearing the Word of God and the different ways that people will hear the Word of God and the ways that will contribute to their lives. And it's a very burdensome text. It's a very serious text, and in some ways a tragic text, as we'll see, because there are people who, though they indeed, as we saw in Isaiah 6, have ears they will not hear. And there are people who, though they have eyes, will not see. They will not hear the Word of God. They will not see the Word of God because they've hardened their hearts. And so even this morning, I feel insufficient to communicate these things. With that then, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, 
I say along with the Apostle Paul, Lord, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to communicate the Word of God, Lord? I know I am not, but Father, Your Holy Spirit is God. You are sufficient to communicate these things, Lord. And so this morning, I pray that You would speak through me powerfully, Lord. I pray that You would help me to get out of the way, Lord, and just be a simple instrument for Your voice, God. Please, Lord, without Your voice this morning, it's just the voice of another guy rambling on up here, Lord, but... If you speak through me this morning, Lord, lives are changed, hearts are opened, eyes are opened, ears are opened, Lord. So we pray for that this morning, Lord. Fall on us this morning in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. And it may be a sign of the end times, but I do have a PowerPoint this morning. This is a new thing for me, so please bear with me. It might be a little rough. And so you'll see on the PowerPoint that we have the parable of the sower, Mark 4, 1 through 20. Well, before we even start, you can go to the next slide. Okay, one more. No, not that one. What happened? It didn't work. Go back. Okay, so it's not up there. See, this is why I don't use PowerPoint. It just confirms all of my worst fears. Okay, so what was supposed to happen was the parable of the sower was supposed to go away, and it was supposed to come back and say the parable of the soils. And here's why. Because Jesus himself calls this parable the parable of the sower. And it's so it is. But in titling my sermon this morning, I'd like to call it the parable of the soils. The focus of the parable is not on the parable of the sower. We can call it that. That's fine. That's a great way to identify it. It's not wrong, obviously. But to help focus our minds, we're going to be focusing on the soils this morning. And as we go through it, you'll see that that's obviously what the focus is on. And as I was thinking through the sermon, I read an interesting article this last week in New York Times by Ross Douthat. He's an opinion piece writer. Listen to what he says. It's on this Pew survey that came out. I don't know if you guys heard about it. Um, they just recently did a, a Pew survey where they, you know, survey a bunch of people. And they found that Christianity is declining in America. He says, the new Pew survey on religious affiliation in America, released and much discussed around the internet yesterday, paints a portrait of institutional Christianity in retreat. And the continuing rise of what we call the nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. People attached to no organized religion as a major constituency in American life. The pace of both trends is striking. As Notre Dame's David Campbell quoted in this Daily Caller piece points out, given how quickly the non-affiliated population rose in the late 1990s and early 2000s, you might have expected a slowing or a leveling off. But instead, the trend line is still steep. From 16% none, in other words, people wouldn't ask if they are any religion would say, I'm nothing. So from 16% of these people in 2007 to 23% of Americans today, and about 35% none among millennials or people around my age or a little bit younger, 35% of Americans. Meanwhile, identification with every major branch of Christianity is down in percentage of terms. And only evangelical Christianity is seeing its absolute numbers still increase. Just in case you're wondering what evangelical Christianity is, that's us here. The black Protestant churches are holding steady, but in Pew's numbers, Catholicism seems to have joined the Protestant mainline in a kind of demographic freefall. So what we see here is that in the eyes of the watching world, Christianity seems to be on the decline. The numbers of people who are no longer declaring themselves Christians, or anything else for that matter, is on the rise dramatically. But the question is, is this a reason for worry? Should we panic? Is God losing ground? Well, listen to the next paragraph 
and notice what he says. He says this, what's in steepest decline is affiliation, not religious practice. What we're clearly seeing happen in Bible Belt environments, as well as on the liberal coasts, is people who once would have identified as Christians socially, in other words, he puts in parentheses, as Christmas and Easter Methodists or cultural Catholics, are now dropping the label altogether. And so he's undoubtedly right. This so-called decline in Christianity is, from our perspective, not a decline in Christianity at all, but merely an exodus of false disciples. People who were culturally Christian no longer feel the need to identify with the church or Jesus anymore. This is nothing to be alarmed at. The global church is expanding rapidly. Look up the numbers from Africa, China, places like this. Christianity is exploding. And what we're going to look at today in Mark is a parable told by Jesus that explains why this happens. This parable actually explains the entire history of the so-called ups and downs of the Christian faith throughout the last two millennia. You will see as we read through it that none of this has surprised Jesus in the least bit, and that even in his day, people responded in various ways to him. And so as kind of a disclaimer, this passage is a big chunk of text that touches on a lot of issues, a lot of extremely significant things. It's an extremely central passage to Mark's gospel, and therefore has provoked much debate, discussion, and dialogue. And so today my main goal is not to cover every exegetical issue, every possible interpretation, every little intricacy of each verse. But rather my prayer is this this morning, that today you would hear God's voice through his word speaking to you. That the soil of your heart, as we'll see, would be changed and made more receptive to the word of God. So, Prepare your eyes and ears of your heart today to hear him. And with that, let's read through our passage. Mark 4, 1 through 20. He says, again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, 
But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And so, if you were to take the Gospel of Mark and divide it into sections, you could divide it really into two large sections. Chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 30. And when we get there, you'll probably see why. Chapter 8, verse 31, through 16, verse 8. And what is immediately apparent in this passage is that it falls directly in the middle of the first section of Mark. Previously, Mark had told us many times that Jesus had taught. Remember, we've seen many instances in Mark of Jesus' teaching, but Mark, he hasn't told us yet what Jesus was actually saying when he was teaching. But now, he's going to give us Mark's first example of what Jesus was saying when he was teaching. Mark doesn't do this often, and so this is significant. In the Gospel of Mark, there are only four parables. And so each one is extremely important. This one being the first, we're going to see that it's formative to the rest. I think it's very significant that the first example we have of Jesus' teaching in Mark is this parable. So the first three chapters then of Mark have focused on Jesus' proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God. You may think back. And it's kind of focused on people's different responses to Jesus. Kind of do a quick review. There were those who at Jesus' preaching, at Jesus' ministry, were excited. His new disciples were enthused and began to follow Jesus. Some thought he was crazy. We saw that two weeks ago. His family attempted to contain him because they thought he was out of his mind. There were those who thought he was empowered by Satan and sought to kill him. The Pharisees and the Herodians had already begun in chapter 3, verse 6, to plot to kill Jesus. And some even attributed his power to demonic forces, as we saw last week. These are among some of the stronger and more extreme reactions to Jesus, but some others have had more reserved and cautious reactions. Certain people were just plain puzzled and didn't know what to make of Jesus, eliciting not much of a response at all. Some began to ask questions. Others were simply amazed at his teaching and his miracles and followed him around just to see the spectacle that he was. The point is that all of these groups of people responded differently, extremely differently in some cases. This raises the natural question, why? If Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, why would some people reject it? Why would you reject good news? Others embrace it, and others just brush it off. What's the difference? This passage in Mark is Jesus' explanation. This passage and where it occurs also shows that Mark, as a writer, intends this parable to be the key parable by which we understand the how and why of all of Jesus' parables. That's why Jesus says in verse 13, if you don't understand this parable, how will you then understand the others? And so now, as we look through the passage... Let's set the scene. So verses 1 through 2 are setting the scene for the story. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea. Try to picture it in your head. Funny how we, we treat the Bible differently from a normal book. Obviously, in a good way, too, but there's bad ways in which we do that. Sometimes we read like a book of fiction. We really picture the scene in our head. Even nonfiction book about a war, that you're almost trying to put yourself in there and imagine what it's like. And the books that we love are the ones that put us in that scene. Well, sometimes we fail to do that with these stories. And this is a narrative of what Jesus is doing. So let's put ourselves in the scene. So imagine the scene. Try to picture it in your head. Jesus has gone beside the sea 
to teach. Picture this in your head. He's come to the seashore with a large crowd gathering around him. Jesus begins to teach, but it's too crowded. So what he does is he steps into a boat, basically uses the boat as his pulpit, and teaches the people. So picture that in your head. Jesus is sitting. That's how rabbis used to teach back in the day. He's sitting in the boat, teaching the people as they crowd around, probably some of them with their ankles in the water, listening in to what he has to say. And he begins to teach. And according to Mark, he taught them many things that day in multiple parables. That's why he says in verse 2, he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them. So the first question that we need to make sure we understand is, is what is a parable? So we need a crash course on parables. You might have heard that a parable is an illustration, something thrown alongside of a teaching to help explain it. People get this idea from looking at the Greek word for parable, which is parabole, and dividing it up. Para means alongside of in Greek, and balo means throw, so then a parable is something you throw alongside of a teaching. Fortunately, this is not how language works, and that type of thinking is called a root fallacy. It doesn't work. Let's try this with English. How about the word butterfly? What if we did the same thing with that word? We've got two words. We've got butter and fly. Yeah, it doesn't work, does it? Not at all. Not even close. And there's, there's lots of words like this that it just doesn't work. So for some words, it works. For others, it doesn't. And so we can't just use that however we want. Parable does illustrate, but it's much more than illustration. So please, this morning, don't see Jesus' parables as illustrations. If you do, you will completely miss the point of Jesus' parables. And here's why. Because if we see them as just illustrations, it takes the edge off of his teaching. Jesus' parables weren't just nice stories, but more often than not, they shocked, confused, and challenged people. If a parable is not just an illustration, then what is it? And here's the general definition. A parable is an expanded analogy used to convince and persuade. Then an analogy is a simple comparison, comparing two things. That's why in almost all of Jesus' parables, not this one, he'll say the kingdom of God is like such and such. We'll see that soon. And so he's making a comparison between two things to convince and persuade people. And so this is the main difference between a parable and an illustration or a nice story. Parables are meant to get a response. A parable leaves you with a decision. A parable leaves you with a choice. A parable challenges you and calls you to action, challenges your thinking. This is why if we think of Jesus' parables as just illustrations, we'll miss the point. Because the point is to challenge. The point is to stimulate. The point is to usher a response. So we miss the entire thrust of the parables, and they fly right over our head if we just think of them as illustrations. Jesus used these parables very intentionally. He did this to shake people into thinking, a new type of thinking, to stimulate a response. We'll see Jesus use parables in the Gospels to communicate the kingdom of God, the character of God, or who God is, and what God expects of humans. So now that we understand what a parable is, I pray that we are sufficiently ready to hear Jesus' words, and that we are sufficiently ready to be challenged and respond to our Lord and Savior. And so now let's look at the parable with Jesus' explanation. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through the parable and kind of side by side with Jesus' explanation. And then at the end, we're going to tackle verses 10, 11, and 12. The first thing we see in Jesus' parable is he says, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Now some of your translations might not have the word behold or look, which I don't know why they did that. It's there in the text. Most translations have it, but the old ESV doesn't have it. The new ESVs have it. I have no idea why. 
But this is extremely important. Jesus begins his parable by saying, listen up, look, see. So again, remember that quotation by Isaiah we've heard a couple times now. It's all about hearing and seeing. Jesus is intentionally positioning this parable in a way that's saying, you need to hear this and you need to see this. This is important. Hear. And this idea of hearing is much more than just hearing with the ears. It's a hearing and understanding. Listen and understand, Jesus says. Listen and see this. And so the the listen word is a command. It's a command to listen up. Look. I like the King James translation of this verse. It says, hearken and behold. I think that gets the emphasis of the text. Hearken and behold. In other words, time to listen. He commands the listeners to perk up not only the physical ears and eyes, but the ears and eyes of the heart. This command, again, ties in with the fact that Jesus will later quote Isaiah 6. In other words, this is not simply a command, but a prophetic cry that says, you must listen and understand this. It's extremely important. Something that's been hidden is about to be revealed. This is a prophetic cry. In this way, Jesus cries out from the text to us today, I pray that you would respond. Open your ears, open your eyes, and open your minds this morning to the truth of this text. So I echo Jesus' words today. Listen and understand. Behold, a sower went out to sow. In this parable, the sower is a preacher, and the seed is going to be the word of God. And so we go on. The first soil that we come to is the soil along the path. It says, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. So you have to picture a farmer just kind of going out, tossing his seed, and some of the seed unintentionally just falls along the path. Now, the path would be something that's hard. Obviously, if it's a path, it's been tread on, it's going to be hard. That's why the seed doesn't penetrate. It's like if you throw bird seed on the asphalt, bird's coming to get it right up. If it goes in the grass, it's a little bit harder for them to find. It's right on the surface. It doesn't go in. This is the seed that represents the people who will have hard hearts who will close their ears to Jesus' teaching. You'll see that this is what Jesus says. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. This happens quickly. The point is that the soil is so hard that the seed can't penetrate. This is to say that there are those who will hear the word of God whose hearts are so hard, God's word will not penetrate and immediately will bounce off and Satan will take it away. Obviously, it goes without saying that Satan is in the business of taking the word from people. Notice how that's how he combats us. He takes the word of God from us. See, Jesus explains that Satan in this parable is the bird who devours it. He steals the word away from people. But notice that he is only able to do this because of the hardness of the soil. It doesn't say that Satan made the soil hard. It just says the soil was hard. The people's hearts were hardened against the word of God. People whose hearts so hardened that the gospel just bounces off of them. In one ear, out the other. They don't even give it a second thought. And before they know it, and probably without their knowledge, Satan has stolen it away from them. There were people like this throughout Jesus' ministry. Most of the Pharisees were like this. I mean, good grief. In Mark, the beginning of chapter 3, they're already plotting to kill him. They never even gave the gospel a chance. They never gave the good news a chance. From the outset, they were opposed to Jesus. They had already made up their mind. 
and you might notice that Jesus doesn't spend much time trying to convince them. And there are people like this today as well. Some of you today may be these people. I pray that it is not so, but I fear that it is. Have you hardened your heart so much that you can no longer hear the things of God? Dear friend, I pray that you have not. But if you have, there is hope because God is in the business of melting and smashing hearts. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon on this text, on this hard soil. This is what he preached to his congregation. He says, what shall I do for you? Shall I stand here and rain tears upon this hard highway? Alas, my tears will not break it up. It is trodden too hard for that. Shall I bring the gospel plow? Alas, the plowshare will not enter the ground so solid. What shall we do? And he prays to God, O oh God, you know how to melt the hardest heart with the precious blood of Jesus. Do it now, we beseech thee, and thus magnify your grace by causing the good seed to live and produce a heavenly harvest. And that's my prayer today. If you're here and your heart is hard, and things are stirring, my prayer is that God would continue to melt your heart, as he says, with the precious blood of Jesus. There is hope for those with hard hearts and closed ears, but only through the grace of God. And let me say that if you're worried that that might be you, it's probably not. And if you are, pray to God for his grace. There are those whose hearts are so hard that they don't even want to hear the gospel. If they hear it, it bounces right off and Satan snatches it away. Their ears are shut. Hearing they do not hear, as Jesus will say. And we move to the second step in the parable, the soil above the rocky ground. That is soil that looks like soil on top, but right beneath it sits a large rock. So the seed goes in, it grows, it grows up fast because it's pushing against the rock, shallow soil, but as soon as any heat comes, it withers and dies because it had no root, no depth. Jesus says it this way, other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Jesus tells us who this is. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Oh, this is amazing. This is such good news. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Or another way to translate that would be, they're temporary. Then when tribulation, persecution, hard times come because of the gospel, because of Jesus, immediately they fall away. This is the person who hears the gospel preached and excitedly accepts it. They may be active in the church for a while. They may seem like such a sincere believer, but they are merely temporary. As soon as hard times fall on them, they're gone. Back to their old life, they've left Jesus they're fair-weather followers of Jesus. They're happy with Jesus when their life goes well. They're angry with Jesus when their life is not going well. There were plenty of people like this during Jesus' ministry. Think of all the listeners in John 6, if you remember the story, who turned back from him and left him because his teaching got hard. There wasn't even persecution per se. They just didn't like his teaching anymore. This is too hard, Jesus. We're out of here. They were excited at first. What happened? There was no depth of soil. Their hearts were excited because in some way it was benefiting them. In some way it was exciting, but as soon as it got hard, they were gone. And we've all had friends like that who seem like great friends, they're exciting. As soon as something hard comes, never see them again. The Apostle Paul 
in 1 Thessalonians, writing to them, is worried that this might happen to them. He says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to you that I might know your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and that our labor would be in vain. In other words, he's saying to the Thessalonians, I was so worried about you because I knew Satan was going to attack you. I was worried that you might turn and leave Christ. But alas, Thessalonians held strong. His worries were in vain. His labor was not. Paul was worried that they had fallen away because of persecution, but indeed they had stood strong. And brothers and sisters, there are many like this today. When the going gets tough, or they start catching flack for being a Christian, they desert Jesus. Or maybe they don't desert Jesus totally, but they become cultural Christians. They'll show up at church every once in a while. They might say they're a Christian, but they've kind of given up pursuing that life. They've given up pursuing Christ-likeness. They've given up trying to be a disciple. When different types of persecution comes, they cannot bear the weight or the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. I would say this, before you so quickly assume that this is not you, I would ask you, would you be willing to forsake all for Christ? If hard persecution came, would you be able to stand? Again, we're not asking you to stand in your own strength, but in the strength of Christ, but would you be willing to stand? Think of the Christians in the Middle East right now, who are experiencing horrible persecution. And I'm sure there's so much that goes on that we don't even hear about. Because frankly, nobody really cares that much. That's why you don't really hear about it too much on the news. And it's a tragedy. But the thing that is amazing is these brothers and sisters in Christ, they stand under persecution. And so I would ask you, would you be willing to forsake all for Christ? What if it cost you your job? Would you be willing to bear the weight? What if it cost you your family? Would you be willing to bear the weight, the cost? Your children? What if it cost you your house? What if it cost you your very life? We know that for the apostles themselves, it cost them their lives. They all went to martyrs' deaths because of this. Crosses, beheadings, all these were the lives of the very earliest Christians. So I'd ask you, would you be willing, if that is what defined a Christian, heavy persecution and martyrdom. Would you be willing? Being a disciple may cost you these things, but you will gain Jesus. And he is enough, brothers and sisters. Hold firm when persecution comes. Hold firm when your discipleship hurts, when it costs you something. Hold firm when it costs you everything, and you will gain Jesus. He is enough. We were in our captivate colleges in the high school group, we were going through a series by John Piper. He told a story, I forget the man's name, but he was a missionary on some remote island. He had gone there with his wife and children, and at this point in his ministry, he was being chased by over 1,500 natives who hated him and wanted to kill him. And he climbed up in a tree to hide from them, and as he watched them run beneath him, they didn't see him, he said he had the sweetest, most intimate time of connection with Jesus And he realized in such a real way the text that says, Lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. He said, I wouldn't trade that moment for anything in my life. And that's the truth, is that in the hardest times often, and maybe some of you have experienced this, is when you will feel closest to Jesus if you hold on to him. And that man evidently ended up burying his wife and his six-month-old baby on that mission field, and yet he stayed in the mission field and many came to Christ because of it. This is what it might cost you to be a disciple. 
there is a cost. Jesus says, count the cost. It's interesting in our churches and our preaching, we don't often echo Jesus in this. He kind of said, whoa, 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 wait. Before you believe in what I'm saying, before you come follow me, count the cost. It's going to cost you everything. This is not a light matter. So brothers and sisters, I would say count the cost. And when you do and you follow Jesus, hold firm, hold firm. And the third soil we see is a soil among the thorns. And I think this soil is the most dangerous. Jesus says, other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it. And it yielded no grain. So we see the seed lives. There's a little bit of life here. It doesn't say that it killed it. It says that it choked it and it yielded no grain. I think of my poor tomato plant that sits in the corner of my small apartment patio and barely gets any sun. And so it grows. It'll grow big. I think it was like six feet high at one point, but only will have maybe one tomato on it. And it's funny and we laugh, but it's how many of us are like this? We want to grow, but we let things choke out our ability to bear fruit. There is life in the soil, but it's fruitless. This is the soil, the people who hear the word, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches or wealth, and the lust for other things enter in and choke it. As you can see on the screen here. And it proves unfruitful. The cares of this world strangle the fruitfulness of the seed. They make it so that it cannot grow and bear fruit. Dear friends, we are so in danger of this today. Our lives are filled with the cares of this world. Our lives are filled with the deceitfulness of riches. Everything from our culture screams to pursue these things. Everything. And oftentimes we're the ones who fill our lives with these things. We pursue worldly things. We care about worldly things. We desire worldly things. We lust after worldly things. I wonder how many of us will let these things choke out our desire for God. We carry around phones that are in many ways direct connections to worldly cares and desires. You can't even tell me that as we check our Facebook every 30 seconds and our email every 30 seconds and spend our days distracted and scatterbrained that this isn't exactly what's going on. Some of you know I don't have a smartphone. I'm not excusing myself from that. I'm just as guilty. But we let it choke out our fruitfulness for God. I bet that some of you have even checked your social media during the service already. I guarantee it's happened. Tell me what's going on if that is not directly choking out our ability to be fruitful for God. That's what it is. You know, we laugh, and it is. It's funny. But in another sense, it's not. All Satan wants to do is distract us from the things of God. He doesn't have to tempt us into some horrible sin. He just has to distract us. Ding, ding, and we're distracted. This is the desire for worldly things already distracting us this morning. We're all affected by this in many different ways. It's not just phones. We like to pretend, though, that it doesn't affect us. We're wrong. We're so wrong. I like what John Piper says. Facebook exists so that when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we will never be able to say, I didn't have enough time. That's a heavy word. But we're wrong. The television shows we watch, the music we listen to, the sites that we visit, the time we spend distracted on social media, all of this directly affects the fruitfulness of our Christian lives. And I'm not saying that we need to be monks, but what I am saying is that it all affects us directly. Think about the amount of hours added up 
of the music, TV, and social media intake you have versus the amount of hours of intake of God. And you can include in things like prayer, thinking about God, meditation, reading. You can't tell me that that doesn't affect you. Let me give you an example of how this subtly affects our thinking. And I know this from personal experience. Think about Dave Ramsey. You guys know who Dave Ramsey is? He's like a financial planner advocate guy. He's a Christian. I mean, I don't know him personally. It's cast as a Christian ministry and looks like it for all intents and purposes. So I listen to him sometimes on the radio. It's entertaining. He probably has good financial advice. But even something like that, that's helped a lot of people. Get out of debt. Amen. That's good. But even in my own mind, I've noticed if you focus on that, eventually your goals and priorities start to change. No longer are you so worried about pursuing God. Eventually, all of a sudden, you're worried most about pursuing retirement. You're worried most about financial success and wealth. It's subtle, but it starts to affect our thinking and our priorities. Same thing with TV. I remember I used to watch a show, How I Met Your Mother. Show that you'll watch it, you'll laugh, it's funny, it's inappropriate. But you just think, well, it's just a TV show. You know, what's the big deal? I mean, there's no nudity. It's not anything like that. It's just a sitcom. What's the big deal? It's fun. I just need to unwind. But let me tell you, this is a show. The characters are all sleeping around, casual views on sex, casual views on pretty much everything. And as you start to laugh at these things, it subtly affects the way that you view sexuality. Not outright, but subtly. Suddenly you begin to find things funny that you didn't find funny before. Suddenly you begin to laugh at things that you used to think were horrible and morally wrong. And just from watching a TV show, it happens. And you begin to even doubt certain things. Maybe that type of life would be more satisfying. Looks good on TV. I wonder. And we allow these things to affect us. And so I say, fight this. It will choke out your faith. Spend some time meditating on it this week. How are the things that I'm allowing in choking out my faith? Think of that metaphor. I think it's perfect. Obviously, Jesus said it, but it's perfect. It chokes. It doesn't just cut it off. It doesn't destroy it. It just begins to put pressure and choke on your faith. It chokes out your passion, and it will choke out your joy and leave you fruitless if you let it. Our lives are not meant to be given to fruitlessness, but are meant to be given to fruit-bearing in Jesus. We can't pursue these things in Jesus at the same time. That's the truth. We have no room for a Jesus and Christianity. You pursue Jesus and everything else becomes secondary, inconsequential. Or you pursue other things and Jesus becomes secondary. You can't have both. Jesus says you can't serve God and money. You can't do it. And he doesn't say that because he's a jerk. He says that because he created us. He knows how we work. We're single-minded creatures. He doesn't leave us an option. You must choose one or the other. Pursue Jesus or pursue the world. Pursue Jesus or pursue comfort. Pursue Jesus or pursue... You could add anything there. It's not saying we can't have those things. It's not saying that. But what it is saying is Jesus must be first. Fruit bearing must be first. We must bear fruit. We must have evidence that God is at work in our lives. Now, that's not something we can conjure up. Granted. And what I'm not saying is we need to earn our salvation. We need to earn God's pleasure with these things. It's not to impress God. Don't misunderstand me. But it's to show that God is actually at work in our lives. Listen to the words of John Piper. I think this is so helpful. Fruit does not make a tree good. In other words, our bearing fruit does not make us good. But he says fruit does not give life. Fruit, though, is a sign of life and reality. Good and bad trees 
are known by their fruit. It's obvious. Bad fruit or no fruit means bad tree or no inner reality of the things of God. Therefore, fruitfulness is essential to being a true disciple of Jesus. And since the abiding word is the key to fruitfulness, what we've seen in this parable, discipleship is at stake if Satan takes the word away. This is exactly it. No fruit means no discipleship. If you pursue this world and forsake bearing fruit, you will show yourself not to be a true disciple. What this doesn't mean is if you ever struggle with these things, you're not a Christian. So please don't hear me saying that. There's times where we all struggle with these things. But if you give into it and you pursue those things and just let Jesus become secondary, ultimately, till the end of your life, it shows that you don't know Jesus. He says that. It's not my words. It's his in this parable. So we must fight, brothers and sisters. We must fight this. And so as we've gone through the soils, we've seen a progression. There's thus been a progression in three failed seeds, which probably intended to be noticed this way. The first seed never started, right? Just fell on the hard ground. The second started, but died. The third survived, but couldn't produce grain. But in the end, none of this is of any value to the farmer, since he is looking for grain, not mere survival. And so we see the fourth seed. Notice that these seeds are multiple. So again, don't hear, oh, well, there's three failed seeds and one successful seed, so that means that three quarters of people will be not Christians and one quarter will. It doesn't say that in the parable, so just don't think that way. So what we see here, though, is this is a plentiful amount of seed, the good soil. Remember, the same seed falls into all the soil. The soil makes a difference. So we come to the good soil. This is the soil that bears much fruit. Notice, though, that not all the good soil bears the same amount of fruit. That's okay. This is, in many parables, there's different amount of fruit that's bared. That's okay. Some will bear 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And so Jesus says, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. So notice, everyone's hearing the word, but the difference is they accept it and they bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. I pray that you would be this soil today. I pray that if you are not, God would move in such a way in your heart to stir this up that this very morning, he would make your heart into good soil. God is the one who does this. And so if you're here this morning and you're praising God that you bared fruit, praise God for that. It's a gift from him. If you're here this morning and you're worried, am I bearing fruit? Sometimes the best thing you can do is ask someone else. Ask another strong believer. Hey, have you seen any fruit in my life? Because so many times we're blinded. Ask them. They'll tell you. Hey, I've seen you grow in this way and this way. God's at work in your life. Don't worry. That's what community's for. And so I pray that you would hear the gospel with gladness. That you would hear and then accept it. And then forsake the world and give all to follow Jesus. And that in doing so, through you, the Holy Spirit would produce much fruit. That is my prayer this morning. And so with that then, let's look at the last section. The hearing, verses 10 through 12. I don't have time to dwell on this like I wish I could. There's so much in these three verses, but I'm just going to say a quick word on it. And so we read, this is after Jesus had told the parable and before the explanation. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12, so not just his 12 disciples, but others around him, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand. 
lest they should turn and be forgiven. Let me sum up what he's saying. I can't do justice to this text, so I apologize. There are those who have heart in their heart who will not respond to the gospel. Those are the first three soils. The fourth is those who will respond in true belief and faith. And that's what Jesus says. They're going to hear the word. They're going to hear, but they won't understand it. They're not going to see it because their hearts are hard. These verses explain why the soils are the way they are. It's the way they hear. Notice again that all the soils, all the people hear the word. They all hear it. But how you hear will determine everything about your life. That's what this parable is about, hearing. That's why he begins the parable by saying, listen, see. Those who hear and understand and respond, theirs is the kingdom. It is open to you this morning. The kingdom of God is open. It's open to you this morning. Would you hear God's voice? Would you hear his word? Would you hear with faith? And would you respond with faith this morning? Again, I would say that that God is in the business of breaking hearts. God is in the business of melting hearts. God is in the business of plowing up hard ground and opening eyes and ears. And so if you're here this morning and you feel that your ears are closed, you feel, I don't know, maybe my ears are closed, I don't know, maybe my eyes are closed, I don't know, you pray to God. You plead with him, open my eyes, Father. Open my ears, I want to hear your word. I want to respond in faith. And he'll do that. Our God is a gracious God. And if you hear his word this morning, the secret of the kingdom of God is yours. Isn't that an amazing truth? The secret of the kingdom is that there are those who hear and those who won't. But to those who hear, it's theirs. And so I end this morning with the words of a hymn as a prayer. Let these words sink in over you. It's called, Almighty God, thy seed is cast. Let's close our eyes and let these words wash over you this morning. Almighty God, thy word is cast like seed into the ground. Now let the dew of heaven descend and righteous fruits abound. Let not the foe of Christ and man this holy seed remove, but give it root in every heart to bring forth fruits of love. Let not the world's deceitful cares the rising plant destroy, but let it yield a hundredfold the fruits of peace and joy. Oft as the precious seed is sown, by quickening grace bestow, that all whose souls the truth receive, its saving power may know. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray to you, open ears and hearts this morning. Open eyes. May people hear the word for the first time. May people see you for the first time. God, break hearts today, Lord. Plant seeds this morning that will grow hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. Lord, we thank you. Though at one time all of our ears were closed and all of our eyes were shut, you have opened our eyes and ears, God, in your merciful grace, in your bountiful love for us, God. Lord, I thank you that Jesus came not just to preach but to die and to rise again from the dead, conquering death and sin once and for all, and that he can proclaim to us, if you will just look on me with faith, you will be saved. Lord, I thank you that our bearing fruit is not a condition of our salvation, but an outworking of our faith. Lord, I pray that fruit would abound in this church. Lord, I pray that those who hear this morning, would you increase the fruit bearing in their lives? Would you show us the preciousness of Christ so that 
as we gaze at him, the things of this world would become more and more distasteful, would become less satisfactory, that we would see them for what they are. Father, we thank you this morning. In Jesus' name. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.